Welcome to Shot Reverse Shot. I'm Matt Risby, and well, joining me as always is Ed Davis. How are you doing, sir? All right? Yeah, I'm doing very well. I am looking forward to our 100th episode, which is coming up in a few weeks, and is not this episode as people are looking at the feed might think. Because uh, yeah, this is the 100th episode in the, th- the feed, but because uh, a couple of our episodes were like three hours long and we released them in parts, uh, we're not counting them as as uh, individual episodes. Yeah, yeah, we're not 100 episodes in the canon. Uh, we want to kind of make that sure, uh, make it clear to everyone. Um, and as everyone knows who kind of listened last week, uh, we're doing a, a kind of a cool thing for our 100th episode. People can uh, write in with questions and we'll answer them. Uh, we're kind of turning the show over to you because we can't be bothered to think of anything else to do. <laughs> so um, we've got uh, some people are kind of uh, sending us voice memos, people are emailing us or tweeting us. Um, you can find us on Twitter and Facebook. Um, and uh, if you look at the text for this episode on either iTunes or on the Podbean site, then you will see an email address to send any queries you do have to. So that will be a good episode that we're going to do in a couple of weeks' time. Um, what have you been up to uh, this week, Ed? Has anything kind of caught your eye in, in terms of uh, film shit? Uh, it's kind of tangentially film-related, but I've certainly been enjoying the fallout of the FIFA scandal and the mm. number of people who have decided to watch United Passions, the uh, Set Blatter biopic, which came out last year, and uh, no one really commented on it at the time, but now it's uh, getting a lot of attention from people who want to write about how ludicrous it looks in light of the uh, corruption charges that have been brought against the organisation. Yeah, this is the um, kind of Hallmark-style uh, puff documentary. No, documentary is a biopic uh, about uh, FIFA with um, Sam Neill, I think, and Tim Roth plays Sepp Blatter, I think. Yeah, um, and uh, Gerard uh, Depardieu plays uh, plays someone else in it. I can't remember who exactly he plays, but I, it was hilarious to me because I thought that Gerald Depardieu is actually the person who should be playing Seth Blatter because they have a certain physical resemblance. So I think mm. uh, Tim Roth taking over his role is the most idealised casting I've seen in quite some time. Since Argo, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, and not really wanting to uh, dwell on it too long because, like you say, it isn't film-related, but it's absolutely fucking hilarious because FIFA is as uh, rotten as a kind of a you know two-year-old egg. Um and it's hilarious to see the fallout most um, specifically today. Jack Warner, who uh, was kind of relegated from the position of uh, FIFA vice president for his part in what some people say is a uh, was a $10 million uh, bribe he took to uh, vote for South Africa in the tournament in 2010. Um, he uh, kind of released a video today, which is was shot in his office, and he was kind of um, trying to defend himself by saying, you know, it's a it's a media smear. It's it's sour grapes from uh, the US and uh, Britain for for kind of being overlooked. Um, and one of the articles he held up um, in his defence uh, was from the Onion. Yeah, that I, that amazed me. <laughs> it reminded me of you know the whole thing of the backstory of Rosewater, where that journalist they they used his appearance on the Daily Show as evidence against him. But mm. this is obviously doesn't involve torture, so it's a lot funnier. Yeah, 
yeah. Although if John Stewart wants to make a film about it, then you know I'm all for it. Yeah, go for it, go for it. Um, in the film news this week, getting off the topic of FIFA for a second, um, sad news that uh, special effects maestro uh, Rick Baker is retiring. Yeah, obviously a man who has produced some amazing work over the years, uh, and I kind of feel because he was someone who's so associated with physical effects, it's hard not to feel that it's a reflection on the changed nature of the of the industry. I think probably one of his last ones was the the Wolfman remake. I think was probably one of the last things he worked on, which is not a great film, but it had some pretty cool physical makeup effects on Benicio del Toro. Um, mm. But you kind of feel like it's a it's a sad situation where someone of that caliber and that scheme that uh, of that caliber and that skill is reduced to working on films that people have forgotten about pretty much the minute after they open. Mm. Well, he said that um, he get he kind of has been pretty open about it, and they said that uh, CGI has not only taken a lot of the animatronic uh, work that he does away. Uh, from people who build practical things, but it's also taken a lot of makeup stuff away because mm. it's kind of easier to put half a green uh, skin on someone's face and and kind of uh, CGI on afterwards than spend hours on set doing it when you, you're wasting actors' money and kind of crew money st- standing around waiting for them to be done. Um, but he uh, said that he worked on Men in Black three, I think, um, which is quite recent. It's got kind of a lot of practical effects in it. But he said that. The team that they had for it, uh, you know, who are usually used to working in a huge workshop, but the amount of work they had to do for that film, they could have just done in his garage, um, which is a kind of a sad kind of decline, seeing as, you know, he did the the wonderful practical effects in the first Man in Black, which is what ninety seven, yeah, and we're now two thousand fifteen, so in less than twenty years, he has gone from being able to hold up a you know a tent pole. Uh, summer blockbuster that has some great practical effects in it, but also a lot of CGI to basically being there at the at the kind of changing of the guard, which is really depressing in, in kind of a less than 20 years. Yeah, I was just having a look at some of his more recent work, and uh, his the last film he worked on by the looks of it is Maleficent, mm. where he, he uh, designed the makeup for Maleficent herself, which is the kind of the most striking part about that whole film is how she looks. Uh, but you know everything else is just a wash in CGI and reinforces that idea that the stuff that you know he did so well and which uh, made him such a legend really in that area of the industry has kind of uh, has kind of gone away. Also, did the uh, special makeup effects for Norbit, so he wasn't batting a thousand. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, the makeup was great. I mean, <laughs> the makeup was know. great. Oscar nominated. Yeah, yeah. You, you, you know. I don't want to be saying like that concentration camp guards were just doing their jobs, Ed. Um, you know what I mean? That is really how strongly I feel about Norbit. But I mean, he did Star Wars. He did things like American Wealth in London, which is yeah. a, a key special effects, prosthetic makeup, uh, practical effects, like kind of milestone. Um, the Thriller video. I mean, that's you know, all these iconic things he did. Um, and I don't think we're going to see any more. He did say in, in the kind of interview that he would or be tempted out of retirement for the right project and, mm. you know, to do some design or consultancy, but the days of him, you know, making things, uh, making kind of casts of people's heads and, and, you know, making their eyes pop out of their skulls are uh, unfortunately over. Yeah, I mean, hopefully someone like Guillermo del Toro will be able to lure him out of uh, retirement, someone who's kind of an acolyte of his. I know that he cast him in a small part in The Strain, 
as kind of a nod to the great influence he had on his work. So uh, I think the the best thing that can be said about him is that he inspired a whole generation of people to mess around with, you know, putty and mm. clay and uh, and create weird, horrifying images. Two other bits of news this week, both kind of related, uh, both to do with uh, projects that are now in limbo. Uh, the first is that Disney have shit-canned uh, the third Tron film. Um, I'm not really sure who ordered the sequel in the first place, but uh, that's now uh, uh, in turnaround. And uh, that Kerry Fukunaga has walked off the remake of It, uh, which was an unappealing prospect anyway, but with uh, him at the helm uh, was at least interesting, but now is uh, no more. And uh, Will Poulter had been cast as Pennywise, which is an interesting choice. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, Tim Curry's, there's some big, horrifying shoes to fill. But, yeah. yeah, I think it would have been interesting to see what he could have done with that character, and I assume it's not going to happen. Um, yeah, I was the, the idea of a remake of It is something that I find quite appealing because the miniseries is deeply flawed and not that great. It's kind of very restricted in terms of what they can show. There's certainly nightmare fuel in there because Pennywise is a horrifying creation and Tim Curry has a lot of fun with the part, but everything apart from that doesn't really work. And obviously you have the fact that it ends with a bunch of kids fighting a giant spider, which doesn't really work. Um, A giant stop-motion spider, which uh, hasn't aged particularly well. No, um, but there were a lot of parts of that project which just struck me as weird and wrong-headed, such as the idea of making it as two films, which, you know, I know that's the, uh, the standard, but the idea they had was that it would be split in two films. The first film would do the childhood part of it and the uh, second part would do the adult part of things, which kind of makes sense in that that's how the book more or less divides up. The book starts with a uh, with stuff in the present day, which obviously was like 1985 when the book was written, but the present day and then flashing back to their childhood for the rest of it, and then it goes back to the adults once the childhood stuff is done. But that just seems like such a boneheaded way to do it because not a huge amount of interesting stuff happens with the adults, <laughs> so that second film would be really dull. And also, you know, a key part of the film is the way that the past and the present interplay with each other. So the idea of just filming them as two separate films it seems like such a pedestrian way of handling what could be an interesting story if they cut back and forth. Mm. And are you sad to see uh, a, a Tron sequel go? Not especially. Uh, I'm sad at the possibility of an interesting soundtrack not existing. Um, mm. I, like, I, I, I thought that the sequel was fine. I don't really like the first Tron so the second film was never really going to appeal that much to me but I thought it was visually very impressive and I like the work that Joseph Kaczynski has done on his subsequent work on Oblivion I think he has uh, an interesting eye for creating these odd science fiction worlds so I like the idea of going back into that world and not having to set everything up and maybe being a bit more adventurous with it could have been interesting Uh, mainly though uh, it just reminded me how weird it was when that film came out a week after True Grit Mm. because A, it was a great month for Jeff Bridges but also uh, there were these two films came out at the same time both starred Jeff Bridges both ended up making almost exactly the same amount of money in America they both made about $170 million Mm. Uh, but one of them cost $190 million and one of them cost like 30 Uh, and I just remember being fascinated by that weird battle as True Grit just ran and ran and ran for ages and ended up being this huge hit that no one really anticipated being as successful as it was. Mm. I saw Oblivion the other day 
Um, the first hour of that film was great. The yeah. last hour is pretty shit. Yeah, the last hour, which weirdly is basically the same as the end of Edge of Tomorrow in some ways. Mm-hmm. Which, and they're both exactly the same as the end of uh, Independence Day. It's weird yeah. that those those two films came out back back to back and they're oddly similar. Although uh, Edge of Tomorrow gets by on dark humour a lot more than uh, Oblivion does. Oblivion's a little too po-faced. Yeah, could say that again. Um, last bit of big news that I've got this week um, is the thing that has uh, made the internet very angry, uh, which is uh, they dropped uh, the trailer for the Point Break remake, which mm. I forgot was even happening. Yeah, I had as well. That's one of those ones like the Poltergeist remake that just kind of snuck up and then I was like, oh, they actually made that because it's one of those things that's been in development for at least 10 years maybe. It's this thing where people kept talking about it. I think it, it started out as a sequel. Mm. There was a long time, there was talk of making a Point Break sequel, which obviously talk of that went away after Patrick Swayze died and they realised they probably couldn't really do anything if he wasn't around to reprise the role um but i'm not that i mean i really like the first point point i think it's a really really fun action movie and i think that uh, it has a great kind of grasp on the whole machismo of it all i think Catherine bigelow did a great job with it uh, mm. but i it's one of those ones where i kind of think it's so tied to a particular time that i don't see why there's a problem with updating it now because mm. obviously you can move beyond that early 90s surfer and extreme sports culture and make it a little more tied to now. Yeah, because, I mean, that's the thing, is that the original, I mean, I don't want to say it's got a satirical edge to it, but Catherine Bigelow certainly knew what she was doing when she put that film together. She Mm. certainly kind of uh, made quite a lot of sly uh, kind of jabs at at kind of uh, macho uh, dude bro horseshit. Um, And I'm not saying it's perfect. I do enjoy Point Break. A film I've seen many times um, <laughs> and can kind of quote endlessly. Um, uh, but they've gone for a very kind of gritty, kind of serious uh, take on it this time around, which is, uh, you know, might be a misstep that because it's, it's not really gritty material. No, I guess it it all depends on how the whole film plays out, but it does seem like that idea of just making everything darker and grittier it seems to play against the strengths of the material and maybe mm-hmm. the result being put in the hands of someone who's a bit more of a journeyman than Catherine Bigelow, who I think probably saw that material and thought, I could have a lot of fun with this. Whereas mm. uh, whoever's directing the remake, they probably looked at it and said, yeah, I can film this pretty much as it's written. I can, I can bring this in on budget uh, <laughs> and that'll be fine. And like, I mean, uh, Patrick Swayze and Keanu Reeves were in the original and, and I don't even recognise the two people who were uh, in um, this remake of that I mean, it should come as no surprise to regular listeners I'm not exactly uh, uh, Johnny on the spot when it comes to kind of uh, fresh faces um, but I mean kind of total charisma vacuum I mean whilst uh, uh, Swayze and, and uh, Reeves weren't exactly Robert Mitchum and, and Gregory Peck um, they certainly had uh, charisma and kind of screen presence, and these two haircuts are, you know, kind of just exist in this kind of vacuum of, of nothing. Yeah, I was just looking at them now, and there's not a huge amount of work on Luke Bracey's uh, uh, CV that gives you hope for him to be a good mm. Johnny Utah. Edgar Ramirez is in a few more things. Oh, he's the guy from Carlos, so he's right, yeah. so he's a he's a he's a, he's someone who has a lot of 
uh, charisma to burn, but maybe uh, isn't coming through in the trailer, which is a shame, really, because that, you know, Patrick Swayze is hugely charismatic in that role, and I think that is a large part of what, you know, lends any credibility to that plot that it has, because it is mm. obviously ridiculous, but the, the, the fact that he is such a charismatic person is one of the reasons why it works and also one of the reasons why the first Fast and Furious film which is basically just a remake of Point Break with Mm -hmm. um, car racing doesn't really work that well because Vin Diesel is not a charismatic person that you can imagine someone kind of falling in vaguely homoerotic love with yeah well speak for yourself Ed (laughs) Um... I mean when he's a talking tree yes but not as a man yeah, um, I would say that the internet's reaction has been a little over the top because mm. uh, let's not forget we are talking about Point Break, um, but it does tie into what we were talking about in the last couple of weeks uh, about nostalgia. Uh, people are very protective over things like that, even though it is once again Point Break. Yeah, there was a lot of people at my work who were saying like, "I can't believe they've remade Point Break." It's like, like it's not kind of a sacred cow. Maybe it is for people who just kind of watched it endlessly, repeated on cable. They have a lot of affection for it, but. You know, that's not no reason to say that they can't ever remake it. I mean, they remade Poltergeist, which is an infinitely more interesting and kind of better film. Mm. So yeah, they can they can make any number of shit ones over again. Mm. I mean, obviously, Point Break, not a shit film, interesting, really good, really enjoyable. But I'm saying, you know, just because you have affection for something as a kid doesn't mean that it is untouchable. Yeah. Yeah, and there's having an affection for it and thinking it's eight and a half, which are two different things entirely. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, um, all that nonsense aside, um, let's talk about something. We're talking, uh, as you can guess from the title of this podcast, um, about uh, documentaries and specifically uh, the fact that neither of us uh, will be at DotFest this year, which is a crying shame, given that I think, I mean, I've been going since 2009 was my first one, and I haven't missed a year since, but this year, alas, uh, I am uh, on best man duty at my best friend's wedding, so I'm uh, pretty stoked uh, to be doing that, uh, but I'll regrettably be missing uh, Dot first this year, which is what I'm fine with, you know, a year off uh, could be nice, come back fresh next year, but I am glad to miss it because there's a lot of good stuff in there. Yeah, and you weren't able to convince your best man to have his uh, bachelor party at a screening of The Look of Silence. No, no, he was um, he was uh, fighting that all the way, which is, uh, <laughs> you know, his fault, really. It's his loss. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been going to DocFest a lot. I mean, mostly I worked it. That was my main experience, was actually working at DocFest, selling tickets and stuff, but uh, and attending it one year as press, which was great. The one year that we both went and recorded stuff there was, was really fun, and I think hopefully we'll try and do that again next year, because that was, that was terrific fun. Um but yeah, it's, it's one of the best festivals going, certainly for documentaries. There's a lot of variety there. There's a lot of fun parties which help offset, you know, having to sit down and watch some incredibly depressing stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, they've kind of made a real effort in the last few years to have kind of big uh, events with their bands, live scoring stuff. Um, they kind of started with uh, British Sea Power doing stuff and in the last few years we've had the Unthanks and we've had... Um, summer camp and we've had uh, lots of bands doing uh, cool and interesting things and this year I think unless I've drastically misread it, uh, one of the films is uh, drawn from the BFI's archive of circuses and there's a live circus performance and Sigur Rós doing the soundtrack Yeah, that's pretty incredible, I think their their commitment to doing innovative and exciting 
screenings is one of the things that really sets them apart and, and makes it such an interesting festival to attend. And not only do you get to see a lot of stuff that you know maybe doesn't get wide distribution, although in recent years with the, the way that HBO have been stepping up their purchasing of documentaries and obviously Netflix, which I think pretty much every film that I've ever heard of playing at DocFest is now on Netflix or has been on Netflix in the last year. You know, mm. every so often I'll just browse through the documentary section and I'll be like, oh yeah, I remember that. I remember um, Fuck for Freedom or whatever it was called. <laughs> um, you know, all these various things showing up and uh, I think that, but being able to see them in a festival situation and to talk to people who are really knowledgeable about them, you know, is, is valuable. Although the Q&As rarely are because Q&As in general are pretty terrible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I saw a Q&A a few years ago for a terrible film, which I'm going to name and shame uh, as a... Uh, it was called The Shadows of Liberty. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I went into the screening, um, there were, um, you know, the V for Vendetta masks um, on every seat. Yeah. And the, dire- the director wanted us to put them on so he could take a photo and send it to Julian Assange to show that we were in solidarity with his plight. Um, and I like to keep my uh, film criticism apolitical. Um, plus I also hate V for Vendetta, so don't make me do that. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, the, the editor came in and he was drunk and the film made a lot of wild, substanti- unsubstantiated claims about, it was kind of borderline conspiracy theory, kind mm-hmm. of tinfoil hat stuff. And, you know, the, the editor and the thing came in, made loads of ridiculous claims, um, such as America to be the biggest economy and no, sorry, the biggest democracy in the world, which I'm pretty sure is India. Uh, um, <laughs> Which is, you know, that was the first statement in the film. <laughs> then it kind of set itself up for a fall after that. Um, but yeah, that was, that was, I think that might have been the worst Q&A I've ever been in. Uh, and dreadful film as well. And I've not seen that on Netflix. So, you know, more for the makers of Shadow of Liberty. Yeah, there, there are some standards at Netflix. There's not a, a high bar to clear, as anyone who sat through any of their Richie Rich series will attest. But uh, it's, yeah, there, there are some standards on there at least. Yeah, I would say that uh, Ed is alluding to um, an article that was written this week that uh, you shared and I read and thought was hilarious. Um, uh, someone binge-watched all of the Netflix Richie Rich, the baffling uh, Richie Rich um, kind of reboot TV series. And um, I would say that uh, having watched 10 minutes of Richie Rich yesterday, that article is a million times more entertaining than <laughs> all of the show can ever be. Yeah, that article's on Grantland if anyone wants to read it, and it is it is terrific fun, and the show is baffling. Mm. It's not all House of Cards. No, 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 no. Um, but yeah, Dotfest, um, interesting transitional year this year because they lost pretty much all of their kind of top brass. Uh, Heather Kroll, the uh, um, uh, chief executive of the festival, I think she is. Yeah. Um, uh, left Hussein Karambay, the chief programmer he left. So he got poached by Sundance, which is, um, you know, probably a decent um, kind of uh, appropriation of how highly uh, Dotfest is regarded because I don't really think you get much bigger documentary platforms than Sundance. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, Charlie left, who's basically the kind of the, the head of uh, uh, all the administrative side of it. Um, he left as well. So it's kind of a, a big change uh, and Dotfest, and I think that this year is the festival is still programmed partly and still overseen by the, the those three people departing. Um, so it'll be a really interesting um, kind of uh, thing to see where it goes. Yeah, I mean they 
those three people obviously were hugely important in terms of advancing the festival and growing it in recent years, even in the whatever it is, seven, six or seven years since I first went there or when I first worked worked there. It was it was a fairly big sized festival then. But by the time I last went in 2013, it had become so much bigger and it becomes so much more varied and interesting and um, stressful, <laughs> at least for the people who worked it. Fortunately, that was the year when I wasn't working it, but everyone I knew who was working it seemed to be even more stressed than usual, which is great. That's a sign that the, the festival had become this huge, amazing thing for Sheffield and for uh, the people of the city. And, you know, they could attract all this talent and all of these people who wanted to come there and make it a platform to showcase their film or debut it or make it the like the European premiere or stuff like that. Uh, mm. And, you know, that's, that's a kind of a great sign. And hopefully the framework they've put in and the the passion that they brought to it which you can really feel in all the people who worked under them and all the volunteers will carry over into uh, whoever takes over yeah absolutely because i think it's it's kind of worth noting that like um i don't know whether this says more about me or more about how the festival engages with its own uh, kind of populist really but like i mean i i kind of came to sheffield to be a, a film student mm-hmm. that's why i moved here i still live here now um but uh, I, I remember when we got an email sent around to uh, everyone in our, uh, on our kind of course, and they said, anyone got a spare room in their student house because we've got students coming from abroad to watch, to come to Dotfest. And like we lived in a house that you know, had a spare room, so I think we put up three guys from Canada who come all the way across, all over the world, just to watch stuff at Dotfest. And at the time, kind of like, you know, I wasn't particularly interested in going to Dotfest, and I don't really know why. Um, and you know, kind of viewed them with those guys were kind of a bit of kind of suspicion. But then I went to uh, Dotfest for the first time, um, and uh, kind of thought, "Fuck, this has been on my doorstep all this time." And back then, I was just you know happy to smoke weed and play Bravo, uh, <laughs> rather than actually engaging in in what is you know one of the top three documentary festivals in the world. Yeah, and I think the uh, the size of it is a big part of that. I think the fact that you can go in and watch, you know, however you can watch any of hundreds of documentaries, some of which may never go anywhere, which is always a big appeal of of film festivals. Is there's the chance that you watch something that uh, never gets picked up, but it will only really be known by you and anyone who happened to write a review of it. And I think that in the documentary world the that can happen a bit more because documentaries are so cheap to make relative to narrative features that it's a mm. lot easier for films to get made and shown somewhere but maybe not picked up uh, mm. and I think that uh, again the models have changed a bit in recent years but there's still the chance you'll go in and see something that no one ever hears of again but that blows your mind or you'll see something like Bombay Beach which is a film that you know you, you love and that I've seen since and, and love as well where you watch this strange and wonderful and odd little film that never quite break out, it breaks out into being kind of a huge sensation in the way that other documentaries do, but does become like this thing that you can champion and say to people, you have to watch this on Netflix. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's also a great place to see stuff. If you kind of canny about it before it kind of lands mm. um, ahead of the hype. I remember in 2010, I seem to remember hearing um, kind of through the grapevine that there was a film called Catfish mm-hmm. uh, on on the scene 
and uh, Sundance, it was kind of blowing people away and you had to kind of uh, not know as anything about it if you could go in. And I remember, I think you got a release date of like um, January the next year or maybe even late December. And this was in back in the day when Dotfest was in November. It used to be an autumn festival and then it moved in 2011 to summer. Um, and yeah, caught it at the start of November and yeah, I think they only had one screening of it and I kind of came in as a member of the public and I've never been in a fuller screening um, than that. It was in the, one of the downstairs, uh, sorry, the upstairs um, cinemas at the showroom. So one that only holds like 120, is it? Or maybe even less. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just absolutely rammed with people who had kind of heard about it. And I've never heard a kind of more prolonged applause. And it was all to do with that anticipation of kind of people getting a, a kind of first look at something. Yeah, uh, for, for record, the showroom cinemas, one of them has 83 and one has 110. Uh, right, okay. knowledge I still have um, uh, more than uh, coming on four years after I left. Uh, yeah, the I think also when you and I went in two thousand and was it two thousand and thirteen, we saw the uh, the act of killing there. Yeah, yeah, that was another one where it was a film that hadn't really broken out yet. I think it may have played a few festivals and people were talking about it, but like when it showed really and truthfully I hadn't heard a thing about it and mm-hmm. I don't think anyone was really talking about it we saw it in screen four which is the largest screen and it was maybe a third full and it was uh and this this weird thing where you're watching this incredibly intense and heart-rending film and not having any sense oh within a year people are going to be saying yeah this deserves to be nominated for an Oscar and it's going to appear on all these top 10 lists and I think mm-hmm. the, the ability to go into a film not knowing that it's going to be a sensation is is quite a rare thing these days and that's the thing i like about docfest is again the, the variety the, the breadth of stuff they show means that it's actually uh surprisingly hard for a film to go into it with uh, preconceived notions about it you know it, it beca- becomes more a case of a film gets seen by a couple of people on the first day and then by the third day it's like oh my god you have to go and see you know insert name of film here I'm starting to think I might set this wedding off um, <laughs> and just kind of uh, get my press application in um, and just kind of swing on over because, yeah, kind of uh, just mentioning the act of killing reminds me of the look of silence is, uh, is showing and the kind of follow-up to that, which is, you know, it's going to be a wait to see that otherwise. Yeah, I think um, there's going to be a big difference between the first screening of that <laughs> Doc Fest this year and the first screening of the act of killing. Mm. Yeah, definitely, definitely more than a third in, I'd imagine. Um, in regards to documentaries, we're going to talk about kind of, uh, uh, now you touched upon it earlier, um, kind of Netflix um, has kind of changed the documentary game in the, like you say, they're kind of cheap to produce. Um, and Netflix always kind of picked up and distributed documentaries willy nilly in the past. Um, have now become a little bit of a kind of uh, documentary funding powerhouse in, in a kind of mini studio, really, haven't they? Yeah, and the de- there definitely seems to have been, in the last few years, a real shift to the idea of documentary being something of a popular medium. You know, I, I think mm-hmm. it, there was always a sense that documentaries in the... Except for, you know, something like um, Fahrenheit 9-11, which made whatever it was, like $90 million or something... Except in very rare situations, documentaries never really broke out as popular successes as, as uh, in theatres and 
occasionally they would become successes on television, but they were very, very rare. And it was seemed more like it was a hobbyist thing if you watch documentaries, whereas now I think the ease of Netflix streaming means that it's just a case that more people are watching more documentaries. They'll just kind of scroll through, see something that looks interesting, and then just kind of sit and maybe have it on in the background. And I think that you can really see that's one of the reasons why the movie Blackfish has had such an influence on uh, the business model for SeaWorld, where mm. uh, as soon as that, you know, it was a big thing when it was released at festivals and it was kind of a big thing when it played on CNN, but I feel that the fact that it's on Netflix, I think still currently is, and certainly was on there for a long time, meant that, you know, however, like 20, 30 million people in the US had access to it and be like, oh my God, this is terrible, and decide they weren't going to go to... SeaWorld and that's kind of negatively impacted their profits. I think the uh, the ease with which people now have access to these things has had a real marked in, uh, effect. Mm. And it's, you know, for documentaries on streaming sites such as Netflix, um, the turnaround is much quicker than features appearing yeah. on, on there, isn't it? I mean, Blackfish was on Netflix was in, within kind of less than a month of its theatrical release ending. Yeah, and, and sometimes that's driven by the motives of the filmmakers, you know, Blackfish is an activist doc, so I think they're more interested in getting the message out there than necessarily in making the money, although I'm sure Netflix would probably uh, recompense them reasonably well for getting it out so suddenly. But, mm -hmm. you know, that was a case where the theatrical window doesn't mean anything for them to them. You know, they just want to get it in there and have it seen by people, as as many people as quickly as possible. Yeah, same with uh, Netflix's uh, first ever Oscar-nominated film, Virunga. Mm. Um, did it win last year? Uh, I no. don't believe so, no. No, it didn't, I don't think. But um, that, I think, they showed it once at the cinema just so it would qualify, and then it was just available on streaming. Um, I think that's probably a, a model we're going to see continuing. Yeah, I think it'd be interesting to see how that works uh, if they expand it to feature films, because I don't see why there would be any reason to that it wouldn't work that they could, you know, produce because they're producing the um, follow-up to Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon, which I mm. guess they could qualify for, you know, foreign language if they did it that way, because it's getting a day and date releasing and it will be in theaters for at least a little while, but it will also be available on Netflix the same day. But I mm. kind of wonder if documentaries are still seen as niche enough that people don't mind that so much. Whereas I think if it gets into the realm of, uh, you know, actual features, if they start saying, oh, you know, that's not proper, that's a TV movie. I bet Steve James is wishing he held off on Hoop Dreams now. Uh, <laughs> you know. Well, that, was, um, that was an interesting theory going around last year that the reason why Life Itself didn't get nominated for a Best Oscar, uh, do Documentary Oscar was people were so angry at Steve James over... Uh, and, and Roger Ebert for forcing changes on the documentary category. Uh, I don't know how true that is, but it's certainly something that seemed to kind of have a, a ring of truth to it. Mm. Yeah, it's terrible that those two people pointed out massive flaws in the system. <laughs> and um, fixed it. And, and made kind of lazy old white Academy members, uh, you know, do things properly. Um, sit and actually watch yeah. a film. Yeah. What a hard life it must be. <laughs> um to talk about kind of uh, activist style documentaries, um, they kind of come in various uh, shapes and sizes, aren't they? There's kind of the one-sided kind of polemic 
kind of stuff like uh, Michael Moore does, and then there's like you say, activist kind of single issue uh, films like Blackfish. Um, where does something like The Act of Killing fit into that, which is a film that isn't going to uh, change anyone mm-hmm. in terms of it's not going to like suddenly bring down a government, um, but it's certainly a thing that is is telling a story that is is widely unknown outside of the small area that it affects. Yeah, I think there's a kind of a, a centre of the, the Venn diagram between political or activist documentaries and I won't say non-political documentaries because there's you know politics is ev- everything is pol- is political but you know less political or less overtly political. Um, mm-hmm. I would say that those are films that uh, exist in a political context but are not necessarily pushing for some sort of social change. I think in the case of the act of killing the construction of it, the conceit of it, the idea of taking these guys and making them recreate their crimes in whatever genre they make puts enough of a distance between it and the fact that uh, Joshua Oppenheimer pretty much leaves himself out of the narrative as much as possible. You know, he's not a figure in it, shaping it. He's leaving it up to these guys to talk about the things, that the horrible, horrible things that they did and recreate it. So that's more a case of giving them, you know, enough rope, rope to hang themselves. But, mm-hmm. you know, he's he's making a point that this was a horrible genocide that took place and uh, that, you know, obviously there's a, a political element to that, but they're not sitting there just constantly talking about it in, in terms of kind of a hectoring way. It's more a case of using the documentary form to allow people to see, you know, to get a good glimpse at genuine evil. Mm. Um, and if you talk about kind of um, a film's potential to affect political change um fahrenheit 9-11 a film we mentioned earlier famously michael moore withdrew it from um competition for best documentary and wanted to enter it into best picture um and is the film was explicitly made uh in an attempt to kind of uh galvanize the voting electorate and to get bush out of uh office after his kind of first term um, and the film spectacularly failed <laughs> to do that. Now, it, watching it outside of the context of that election and all that is very interesting because the film is actually making a lot of points that you kind of miss in that kind of context. Um, is the failure of Fahrenheit 9-11 um, to affect real political change more down to the fact, more down to Michael Moore's hubris than it is to uh, a film to genuinely change things. Yeah, I do think that it is his hubris because, like you say, documentary is kind of niche and even though, obviously, uh, that film was hugely successful, I think it's still the highest grossing documentary of all time in the US. Um, it was very much a case of someone uh, preaching to the converted and in a way that basically reinforced the fact that if you were left wing and you wanted to see someone say Bush is evil, he has done terrible things, he has committed war crimes, then you would go into it and you say, oh yeah, that's, that reaffirms what I believe. Whereas if you thought that you were on Bush's side, you wouldn't go and see it. <laughs> like I don't think a huge amount of people went into Fahrenheit 9-11 uh, and, and had their opinions changed. You know, I don't. Mm. I don't think that that very blunt approach really would do things, especially because it's so tied to a specific moment. Like I, th- I feel like, even though it's a film that's deeply flawed, uh, Bowling for Columbine is a film that perhaps 
has a greater worth in terms of advancing or commenting on a a debate within American politics because it's about an ongoing problem that you can kind of draw upon and you can address in interesting and satirical ways, whereas the whole thing with Fahrenheit uh, 9-11 was that it was basically geared towards saying, don't vote for Bush. Mm. Um, yeah, and it, uh, documentary films in particular can uh, influence or um, kind of affect things on a smaller level, let's not forget um, things like uh, Thin Blue Line mm-hmm. and uh, the uh, West Memphis 3 documentaries, which perhaps took a little longer to uh, um, bring justice to the situation. Um, but those were kind of huge forces for change in, in kind of much smaller uh, instances. Or um, The Staircase as well, I think, kind of had an effect on that. Obviously, at the time, it didn't have much of an effect on the guy's, uh, the guy's story. But uh, in the years since then, I think it definitely seemed to have uh, have a strong impact on the way his story was interpreted and the possibility of him getting, you know, parole over time and things like that. I think, mm-hmm. and with, with things like the serial and the jinx as well, more mm-hmm. recently. Yeah, definitely. You can definitely see cases where a documentary can have a, a real powerful and palpable effect on a personal level, but maybe not. And maybe that, in a turn, can have effects on a uh, societal level if, by pointing out flaws in the justice system, those flaws get fixed at some point by people who are affected by it. But that's more a case of you can see the change in one person's life immediately and then change in uh, society further down the road. Mm, Okay. Um, Here's a change in tact slightly. Um, We're going to talk about rock documentaries. Okay. uh, Or rockumentaries. Uh, if you will, if you're a twat. Um, uh, I've got a theory that they kind of fall into one of two categories. One is the expose, uh, and the other is uh, what ultimately boils down to being uh, a love letter from a fan, mm. um, which is frustrating sometimes because you you, you kind of wish um, they would very often bleed into each other, those two things. Yeah, I mean, I recently watched uh, Kurt Cobain Montage of Heck, uh, which is, mm-hmm. it kind of blends both. Obviously, it's written by, it, it's directed by someone who was a huge fan of Nirvana and who was incredibly affected by them and who, through access to Kurt Cobain's archives and you know short films he made, home movies, artwork and things like that, tries to create an image, a, a kind of portrait of what Kurt Cobain was like as a person, which is kind of fascinating. Um, but at the end of the day, it still comes across as, uh, contributing to a myth that has been built up for 20 years at this point. Um, although there are times when it undercuts that a little bit by, for example, showing him making a joke or something, you know. Um, probably the, the moment that really struck me was that they include uh, B-roll footage from the MTV Unplugged sect where right before he starts going into All Apologies, which is, you know, this heart-rending dip- uh, performance of a deeply sad and, and distressing song, uh, he's just kind of bullshitting around with Chris Novoselic. And, you know, you, mm. you actually kind of think, oh, yeah, he was actually someone who um, laughed and had fun and wasn't just, you know, con- uh, constantly tortured and uh, deeply, deeply sad all the time. Or at least he was able to hide it reasonably well. Something like Dig would fall into the uh, the side of being a kind of an expose, mm. um, I guess, and some kind of monster possibly as well. Um, Although I think, whereas... I think Dig 
is something that starts out as a thing by a fan and then ends up as an expose. <laughs> yeah, or yeah, because of and the I amount think, of time they filmed it for. Yeah, and yeah, it's certainly kind of um, if you kind of read about the making of that film, uh, the woman who made it was uh, pretty much. Like I had to stop because if I didn't stop, I'd I'd go insane. <laughs> um, but yeah, it definitely kind of struck me as you know someone who loved the music of both bands and then was driven kind of slowly insane by both of them. Um, um, something like the last waltz as well is mm. kind of a bit horrible in terms of. I mean, people hold it up as a kind of a landmark concert, but it was it was really a kind of a, a bit of a love in between Scorsese and Robertson. Um, it wasn't particularly good. Those are kind of held up widely as being. It's kind of you know uh, great rock dogs, but they're kind of not actually anywhere near the truth, which is kind of what the point I'm trying to get at. Um, things like Made of Stone, we talked about that the other day. That is an, a very open and unapologetic uh, love letter from Shane Meadows, from uh, you know to his favourite band. But you know how affecting is it really as a as as, as a document? Um, the uh, you know one I enjoyed uh, the. Uh, Tribe Called Quest documentary, Beats, Rhymes and Life, Michael Rappaport's film is great. It's a really hugely affectionate look at that band and it's really lovely to watch. But, you know, how effective is it as as, as a documentary or does that matter? Uh, I think it depends on how upfront the director is with the fact that they are a fan and they're just making something because they really like the band. Like, I think you're right in that The Last Waltz captures some amazing performances and it's a really kind of great uh, way of capturing this that time, but it is also fundamentally dishonest in all of the non-band performing stuff. It mm-hmm. is just Scorsese letting Robertson kind of spout off as people play pool in the background or whatever. You know, it's not it's not very substantive. It's just maybe basically people who are clearly have done a lot of cocaine together hanging out. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's in that respect it's kind I think it's it's kind of an accurate depiction of what it must have been like to hang out with that band, which is that they're all very self-important. It's like it's the end of an era, you know, all that sort yeah. of bullshit. Um but something like Made of Stone and uh, Beats Rhymes and Life, at least you the you know, certainly in in Made of Stone Shane Meadows is in the film essentially saying these bands meant a lot to me and I you know, this is this is something I've always wanted to do. I've always wanted to document this band, and really, the film is as much about his experience of loving the band as a fan as it is the band itself. So, I think uh, on the, the willingness of the artist making the film to acknowledge this is not a substantive thing about the band as an entity. It is very much a case of, yeah, I am someone who loves this band hugely, and I want to get that affection across. Uh, I think if they're honest about it, then that's that's a different thing. In terms of, uh, we mentioned Michael Moore earlier. Mm-hmm. Um, it's very kind of um, divisive at how effective uh, the technique of a personality-driven documentary is. Um, you know, and when I say that, I mean the person who's making the film, actually being in the film in front of the camera, um, maybe even sometimes just the voice kind of guiding over the top. Things someone like Werner Herzog, uh, Nick Broomfield, uh, Louis Theroux. Michael Moore, those kind of people who put themselves in the film. Um, how effective do you think that is? And can you understand why it's hugely divisive sometimes? Uh, yeah, I can definitely understand how it's hugely divisive. And I often feel pretty divided on it myself. Uh, to use a, a very specific example of a filmmaker who does that a lot, and you already mentioned him, uh, Nick Broomfield is someone who I have a love-hate relationship in with in that 
I love some of his films and hate some of his films, and some of his films I love like 80% of them, and then there's 20% that I just think, oh, this guy's a scumbag. <laughs> and I think it's very, it is very effective because when you have a person on screen who's kind of taking you in often by affecting a certain degree of naivete about the subject, they act as an avatar for you or as a surrogate for the audience to basically say, I'm going to take you inside of this subject. And I think in the case of someone like Nick Broomfield, who has kind of a, like a muckraker quality to him, where he really, certainly in something like Kurt and Courtney, which is just kind of a reprehensible attempt to justify a lot of weird conspiracy theories around Courtney Love murdering Kurt Cobain. Um, there's, there is something really kind of uh, scummy about it. And there is something really horrible. Whereas when he, picks a subject where it's not just kind of playing to a tabloid mentality, such as his most recent film, uh, Tales of the Grim Sleeper, which is really good um, and is all about a very specific serial killer operating in LA and examining how this guy was able for about 30 years to just indiscriminately kill prostitutes in his area because they were poor and black, you know, mostly. Not always, but generally they were kind of poor and black and were ignored by the police um they're having someone take you into that world and see how him directly interact with the people in his neighborhood is very revealing and i can mm. and i feel that there is a certain uh, quality to that that you wouldn't get through a kind of a straightforward or a more dispassionate documentary whereas uh you know other times depending on the subject or depending on like in uh, in his big in two-back documentary which for the large part is a really good summation of the the things that led to the their deaths there's just one bit where they go to the prison where sub knight is being held and the warden tells him to wait for a moment while he talks to sub knight see if they can get an interview and then as they're walking around nick grunfeld just kind of walks over mic'd up and just kind of walks behind and see if he can record their conversation and you kind of think that's that is deeply scummy <laughs> way to act and uh, you kind of wonder you don't wonder why he did it because he's obviously trying to get a scoop. You just kind of wonder why he would leave it in the documentary because he does not come off well. No, he doesn't. Which is weird that he does leave it in because um, you'd think they'd be savvy enough um, to know that rather than egotistical enough to to kind of leave themselves in. But I suppose that's the deal you're making when you stand in front of the camera, isn't it? I suppose. Yeah, and I think it it, it speaks to a desire within him to try and be as honest as possible with in showing his work essentially and to let people know what his methods are, which you can kind of respect whilst at the same time decrying the fact that those methods really do come across as, as kind of uh, deeply flawed. And mm. the second Eileen Wernos one is the worst probably for that. Just the, the, the fact that he left the camera recording and recorded a private conversation with her, even though it's revealing and it shows, Oh yeah, she actually, uh, knows she isn't crazy she just wants to die um, she just doesn't want to be in jail anymore so she's willing to confess to these crimes that she did commit but to kind of change her reasoning for it and act like she's just an inhuman monster so she can get out be killed and no longer be in jail uh, it's kind of a betrayal of her trust and you know it's deeply troubling mm. i suppose it doesn't matter if they're uh, a bad person though does it oh hang on it does um <laughs> Yeah, Jesus Cordex. Christ, Broomfield. Yeah, yeah, which everyone knows is the county next to Thuffock. <laughs> it's one of my favourite ethics-based jokes. Right there for you. Um, 
yeah, that I think that that discussion has made me uh, both want to rewatch a lot of stuff uh, and also um, kind of not go to that wedding, like I said, because <laughs> uh, Doctor Doctor Fest is uh, not to be missed this year. But I'll be back next year, and hopefully you'll be back too. Yeah. Um, we're going to do something a little different to wrap up this week's episode, and we hope it'll work. And do it in all future episodes. We're going to do uh, what we like to call shot reverse shot recommends. Uh, we're going to just pick a couple of things that have to be films, but they're really sure we have to be film related, um, and uh, we'll kind of recommend them to you so you can kind of go away and have fun with them um, and do what you will. Uh, what are you going to recommend this week, Ed? Uh, I've got two recommendations. The first one is uh, for my favourite film of uh, 2015 so far. Uh, it's a short film by a guy called Don Hertzfeld, who is an independent animator who's nominated for an Oscar when he was like 23, and he's kind of a wonderkind who uses the profits from his films to fund the prop- the, the the next film. And this current one, I hope, makes a huge amount of money because it's it's wonderful. It's a film called uh, World of Tomorrow. Uh, which is uh, an animation about a young girl who is visited by her a clone of her from the future who takes her to the future and shows her all these weird and disturbing ways that technology has, has evolved. And it's great for a number of reasons. One of them is that it does something that I think of as kind of found filmmaking where you take audio that's recorded separately and has nothing to do with the plot and you construct a plot around it. Uh, mm. In this case, Hertzfeld recorded his niece playing and then uses that to construct a narrative which uh, is very funny because occasionally she's just kind of gibbering and the other character in the short is like I have no idea what you're saying uh, and it's very funny to acknowledge the fact that this audio is has nothing to do with the story being told uh, but it's also uh, deeply moving in the you know it, it, it tells the story of this clone who has all these memories of the little girl and of meeting the little girl when she was uh, all, all the little girl's memories of meeting the clone and it has this wonderful uh, crazy time travel uh, construction to it which is really lovely uh, and it's just this wonderful unique and strange film it's only 17 minutes long and it's available for rent on, on Vimeo and I think people should uh, check it out because it's it's really special and, and wonderful and the other thing is a television show and it is NBC's Hannibal which returns on Thursday of this week uh, I'm a big fan uh, of the show. I think that the last season in particular was was kind of stunning, and it's my f- I think it'd be my choice for the best show uh, on television currently. It was my my number one pick last year for the best show of of 2014. Uh, it's the rare prequel that actually works because it understands that if you're telling the story of Hannibal Lecter and everyone knows how it's going to end, you can play it as a tragedy, which is that he forms this friendship with Will Graham. Uh, and then at some point they're going to betray each other and things are going to go horribly badly for them. Uh, and, and I like that dynamic. It's visually wonderful. It's got an amazing soundtrack and uh, it, it makes gore both repellent and beautiful at the same time. And uh, this year promises to be particularly good because they're finally getting to the Red Dragon storyline previously told in the movies Manhunter and Red Dragon. So uh, things are going to get pretty fucking weird. And uh, hopefully they can tell that story without involving Brett Ratner, uh, which is the which was the mistake last time. Maybe they can bring him in to play like a corpse or something. Hmm. Hopefully that would be a dark joke on the uh, on the maker's behalf. Yeah. Um. I'm going to recommend a couple of soundtracks this week. Um. Uh, the first one is uh, the Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid soundtrack. Um. I caught a little bit of uh, Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid on TCM. 
early, uh, earlier in the week, and it kind of got me thinking about how uh, that film is a bit of a weird one because one of those films that uh, was butchered uh, in inverted commas by the studio um, against the filmmaker's wishes, uh, as most of Sam Peckinpah's films were, um, and you know he's kind of regarded by a lot of people as this great kind of lost masterpiece. Um, and the the butchered version is was often seen as kind of incomplete and didn't really work. Um, and you know was this thing that you know if only they could restore it, it would be great. And then they did restore it. And anyone who's got the two disc DVD set uh, can see both versions. Um, but the restored version, which has been put together with Peck and Pa's kind of detailed memos, also isn't particularly great. <laughs> so it kind of makes me think that possibly it's just one of those projects that never really worked, but had enough in it for people to kind of be. Uh, wanting more from it um, but the soundtrack which I kind of was inspired to listen to this week is done entirely by, by Bob Dylan who is in the film and some might say ruins the film uh, by the fact that he's not the most natural actor um, but the soundtrack is uh, rather lovely and uh, yes we're kind of knocking on heaven's door one of those kind of uh, you know one of his kind of very famous songs comes from yeah that's a that's an amazing that song in particular is amazing, and that soundtrack is uh, far, far better than the film it's attached to. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Which kind of got us thinking before we went on air about possible future kind of tangent and episodes of uh, films uh, that are kind of nowhere near as good as their soundtracks, which uh, would be quite interesting. Um, the second soundtrack I'm going to recommend, which is uh, thankfully not a soundtrack that is better than the film, they're kind of both as good as each other, is the soundtrack uh, for the film Beginners, which came out a couple of years ago, which I know I loved. I can't remember if you liked it. Uh, I did. I, I don't think I saw it in time for our best of that year, but I caught up with it and, and thought it was really, really fantastic. Yeah, it's a lovely little film, um, and uh, the soundtrack is um, a kind of a mixture of kind of old songs by people like Josephine Baker and Jelly Roll Morton, kind of old kind of jazz blues kind of standards, uh, and then a kind of a really beautiful, lovely kind of simple score by Dave Palmer, Roger Neal, and Brian Reitzel. And the only reason that I've been thinking about it a lot this week is that my wife yeah, uses the music a lot in her kind of. She's a teacher and she like does uh, drama teaching. Um, and uh, uses the music a lot in um, kind of exercising and stuff and um, she uses the music of that and the straight story weirdly <laughs> uh, quite a lot and um, I kind of knew I kind of heard it coming from the office upstairs and I kind of had to go and find out what it was from because it was so familiar because it was kind of tied so closely to what it is and that film is about memory and about you know how things are, are you misremembering them or you know are you kind of your memory's jaundiced by what's happening now and what information you know now that you didn't know before. Um, and I just thought it was a lovely evocative moment earlier in the week when I kind of heard it and then was instantly uh, drawn into listening to the soundtrack. Yeah, I mean, that's... Uh, again, I would also recommend that film. That film, I think, has kind of been forgotten, except for the fact that Christopher Plummer won an Oscar for it. But uh, that's, that's a lovely little comedy drama that... Uh, manages to fulfil both halves of that sentence. It's both very yeah. funny and deeply moving. Yeah, yeah. Um, it's on all the Netflixes, so if you are kind of inclined that way, then check it out. Um, so that's it this week. Uh, like I say, we're not a dot fest, and uh, we're both sad about it. But, you know, I'm sure we'll get over it and be back next week with something else entirely. Uh, until then, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Goodbye from me.